Welcome to the Story Discovery Podcast. I'm your co-host, J.W. McAteer. Coming up, you'll hear a new story from our free online publication, Etched Onyx. Please join me and co-host Melissa Collings after the reading when we talk with the author about their work and all things writing and otherwise. The Story Discovery Podcast is sponsored by Scrivener, the go-to app for writers of all kinds, used every day by best-selling novelists, screenwriters, nonfiction writers, and more. I think of Scrivener as the Swiss army knife of writing apps. You can use just the parts you need, like the full-screen, distraction-free writing view, or you can dig in and break out all the tools. You can plan, organize, even reorganize, and create your work. You can use it to research and hold all the miscellany of your work in progress, and you can easily share your creations by exporting to various manuscript and ebook formats. At Onyx Publications, we believe in working with companies whose products we actually use and would recommend. Give Scrivener a try. You won't regret it. Our listeners get a 20% discount by using the coupon code STORYDISCOVERY at checkout. You can learn more at their website, literatureandlatte.com, or just type Scrivener, S-C-R-I-V-E-N-E-R, into your search engine. This podcast and all related materials are a production of Onyx Publications. All stories are copyright 2021. All rights reserved. Today's story is A Sign from Above, written and narrated by Gavin Boyder. Settle in and enjoy. Fate is generally subtler than it was in the afternoon when Felix Steinberg met Melissa Hamilton. He was browsing in his favorite thrift store, a tiny place in downtown New York, whose wares spilled out into a weed-choked yard. His cramped apartment was already full of peculiar knick-knacks and characterful old furniture, so he should have known better. When you're an inveterate rummager amongst the discarded and the forgotten, it's a lifelong curse. Felix was on his way out of the store, having successfully avoided the temptation to purchase a stuffed squirrel, when his attention was drawn by a large metal object descending rapidly towards his jugular. He half-stepped, half-slipped aside, as the octagonal metal sign glanced off his shoulder and came to rest in a stack of old literary magazines. Felix landed on his knees, looking up at a young woman on a ladder, arms outstretched before a suspiciously empty patch of wall. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. Did I hurt you? Her pale dress, dotted with violets and celandines, rippled as she raced down to ensure her customer hadn't been bisected. Her oval face was framed by a curtain of reddish-brown hair, a long pre-Raphaelite nose, Cupid's bow lips. Her face was practically an art history lesson, chiefly centering upon the romantics. I'm Melissa, can I help you up? Felix stammered something as he rose, staring at the bright red stop sign that had nearly killed him with irony. He fought for a sensible reaction. I slipped on these old McSweeney's <laughs> just in time to follow your assassination attempt. Melissa laughed and added, Is there anything I can do for you? What Felix said next was hugely uncharacteristic and seemed to escape from his lips without the usual filtration processes of sensible discourse. You can buy me a coffee? Remarkably, she said yes, closed up the shop and they went on their first date, sitting outside a little bleaker street cafe in the amber haze of a July evening. 
Felix was conscious that he'd basically thrown on a random assortment of items in lieu of clothing that morning and was overdue a shave and a haircut. But Melissa didn't seem to mind. She was funny, engaging and well-versed in music, art, architecture, science, political history, all the things that fascinated him. Within an hour, he was imagining yoking her name to his own, her life to his, their futures together. Twelve years later, they were both approaching their forties, having lived together in a Williamsburg apartment for most of a decade. He wrote his novels, and she ran her ever-expanding empire of extraordinary curios, and life was... fine. But Felix began to wonder if it had all been a romantic construct. Was their marriage just a collision that his love of narrative had fashioned? A happenstance? A joke awaiting a punchline? They'd wanted a family, but Felix was unable to provide the necessary elixir, as he put it. Now their relationship was falling apart in a series of increasingly rancorous arguments about everything and nothing. You didn't hang the washing up. You didn't ask me to, he would reply. I shouldn't have to ask. Her frown imputing a degree of carelessness, Felix considered a huge exaggeration. He had a lot on his mind. I am never on your mind, she said as anger gave way to tears. The inevitable occurred, and Felix hired a self-drive truck and began packing books, records, old typewriters, broken Hasselblads, Japanese calligraphy brushes, Turkish lanterns, tales from topographic oceans, and his 1962 Mickey Mouse alarm clock. Melissa had gone to her sister's place in Long Island for a weekend. Felix hoped he could finish the move in three trips. He didn't count on the power of iconography. Stop. The sign, the only item of his left in their apartment, offered its stark rebuke. Felix glared up at it pugnaciously. What? he said. You stop. It's a bit late to be smug now. He weighed up the pros and cons of taking the sign with him, a permanent reminder of a moment when hope had triumphed over reason and experience. No, Felix concluded. I'll leave it there. He'd already driven two loads of his possessions to Greenpoint, where he'd found another bijou apartment. This would be his final journey north and out of Melissa's life. Felix carried the last box downstairs and inserted it into the three-dimensional Tetris game of his U-Haul truck. Then he trudged back upstairs to the third floor to double-check he hadn't missed anything. Stop. There it was, reminding him of the moment when he'd first seen the woman who would absorb his thirties. Melissa would fill his days and sweeten his nights and obsess him like a puzzle he felt determined to solve. Was fixing this an impossible task? Felix sat down in what had been his favourite chair and stared at the red warning. For an over an hour he sat, keys dangling from one finger, waiting for clarity, waiting for certainty, waiting for validation. Oh, you're still here. Melissa's half-hurt, half-surprised voice woke Felix from his slumber. Oh, sorry, Mel, he said, rising awkwardly. I fell asleep looking at that thing. He pointed at the sign, his scowled back. Aren't you taking it? If not, can you just toss it in the trash? It will make me cry. Felix looked at his wife as she placed the keys in the glass ornament by the door. They'd found it together in a flea market in Hoboken. She seemed exhausted. Felix leaned up to unhook the sign from the wall. He put it under one arm, walked over to her, and brushed his cheek against his wife's in farewell. Is it really too late? he asked, as she pulled away to check for insincerity. 
Melissa shook her head. Felix walked towards the door as slowly as he could, waiting for the one word he wanted to hear above all others. Stop. You've just listened to A Sign from Above by Gavin Boyder, and we have him here on the show today to talk about the story and writing in general. Thanks for being on the show, Gavin. Welcome. Yeah, it's great to be here. Looking forward to it. Great. And our co-host is Melissa. Hey, Melissa, how are you doing? Hello, doing well. Excited okay. to be in central London. Hi, Melissa. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And uh, during our pre-show prep, Gavin really does live in downtown London, so you're going to hear some London sounds probably coming through during the show. It should be fun. <laughs> yeah. that, that's what I meant by being... I'm not actually in London. Gavin is in London. <laughs> it sounded like yeah. I was there. Hey, podcast listeners. Just jumping in here to let you know we had an internet recording glitch during this portion of the show, where Gavin introduces himself and talks about his background. If you'd like to learn more about Gavin, you can check his bio on the Etched Onyx Magazine website at onyxpublications.com. After those internet gremlins found someone else to vex, we pick up the show with Gavin having just explained his work as a freelance writer, and in particular, some of the rather unique stories he's written as part of that work. Well, then I wrote one about um, the health benefits of lemon water and the films of Robert Downey Jr. So it could be all sorts of things, you know. Um, so variety is at least um, one, one of the best things about it. Yeah, well, I think that's great and motivational probably for any of our uh, aspiring writer listeners who, you know, realize that they can make a living at writing doing, you know, crazy stuff sometimes, but it's all fun in the end and, and it's all skill enhancing. There's a lot of demand. Uh, I mean, there are just burgeoning, you know, uh, there's things that they call them content mills, which is... <laughs> Not a very appealing concept, but basically there's so many websites demanding demanding content um, to get that you know, all-important Google placing. You know, you've got to have the blog pieces, right. you've got to have SEO content, yeah. uh, landing pages, all sorts of stuff. So it's a really good time to get into it if you if you actually want to make your living as a writer. Now is about the best time it could be, really. That's good to know. Yeah, that's a good point. So your your publishing history is fairly extensive. You seem to crank out the pieces pretty rapidly. Um, what, what do you have a preference for what you write? I know you said you're doing some of the short stories and you're doing a lot of different mm. things, but what's your, what's your hierarchy? Well, I have, I would love to publish a novel and I've, I'm sort of currently writing my third, but the first two are definitely very much in early draft form. So okay. I, I, I sort of write them, put them aside for a few months. Um, send them out to friends, beta readers, and so forth. Yeah. Let them stew, you know, and then come back to them. So I'm sort of, I have a set of projects which I, I mean, I would love to get an agent to represent the fiction. I have an agent for my non-fiction, mm -hmm. but I haven't managed to secure an agent for the fiction yet. And um, I actually don't know how easy it is to to um, leverage short story publication into getting an agent, but. So that's that's a sort of pro long term project. The short stories I started doing just for mm -hmm. fun, yeah. and then I thought, well, I might as well start sending them out again. And I decided this time, unlike when I was in my twenties, to be totally methodical. Yeah. And of course, I'm old enough that when I was doing it in my twenties, there was no internet. Right, right. Yeah. I'm with so, you there, um, brother. <laughs> now, now it's a whole lot easier to um, to uh, to systematize the process of sending oh, yeah. out stories. So. 
Um, I have had quite a few published recently, but I've also sent out vast numbers. Yeah. So um, it's it's really a numbers game, and you know because you're trying to match your preferences with the preferences of mm-hmm. unknown editors that mm-hmm. you haven't met for right. the most part. So it, you know even if you've written a, a story that someone else would jump at if it hits the wrong desk or at the wrong time or they've already chosen things that they want for that issue then yeah. You know, you know this stuff. No, know. but it's good. It's good Preaching to talk to the about for to folks that are listening to the show. Yeah, no, yeah. I think it's terrific. Mm-hmm. It definitely is. I've heard that you have to be careful with when you submit and you get a rejection mm-hmm. that it doesn't necessarily say something about your piece or your writing. Like you said, somebody may have may mm-hmm. love your story, an agent may love your story, but they just published something, you know, two months ago that's very similar. Yeah. So they don't take your piece. And so that's important to keep on looking and don't Absolutely. give up yeah and um yeah and i, I have a, a little handy hint which is um every time you get a rejection send two stories out <laughs> and what you do in that way is you're actually creating a mathematical <laughs> you know profusion of applications so not only are you not only are you keeping a sort of balance of things out there in the world yeah it's like fishing i suppose you throw another hook in the water and yeah. Hopefully you get a bite. Yeah. You know? yeah. Um, most really professional fishermen seem to have multiple fishing rods these days. <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> I like it. That's cool. Yeah. It does. So I'm curious. Yeah. You have done, and I want to talk about your film because that's fascinating, but your books, your novels, maybe we should, should we get into the short story, talk about the short story first? Because there's so much here. Oh, so many yeah, goodies right. we need to talk about. That's but. true. Normally we do try to, um, you know, get the background and then get in a, t- a little bit about the story. So let's talk about the story some, and then we'll get back to these other questions because yeah. um, you've got a lot of interesting um, I know, history in your past. So uh, so for the story itself, mm-hmm. it, you know, when I read it, it felt a little bit real, like it has a personal connection. Is there a personal connection? Mm-hmm. Well, I didn't think there was, but actually looking looking back at it and the, the timing, I had had quite a traumatic breakup from a partner that I was actually engaged to be married oh, goodness, yeah. and without going into unnecessary, unnecessary detail we parted in good terms and we're still mm-hmm. friends but you know it's that pain but that's I think that flavor is in the story that the kind of sense of are we making a terrible mistake here you know maybe maybe it's not too late maybe we could rectify something um, or you know are, are we building this constant narrative of things having to have a shape and have a you know, come to some sort of dramatic conclusion, hmm. and maybe life isn't like that. Maybe life's a bit more complicated. Um, so I guess some of that melancholy came into the story. But because I, here's a, a key thing to to let you know is that it was actually written initially for a competition for um, it's called NY Midnight. They run a whole bunch of short um, story competitions, flash mm-hmm. fiction, and they do screenplay ones as well. And they're very it's very good fun to enter because. Um, they have thousands of entries. I mean, tens of thousands of people enter these competitions. Wow. They give every, all applicants get um, assigned randomly a location, a genre, and an and an item, oh. all of which they must in, incorporate into the the story. So I was given a thrift store, a stop sign, and romantic comedy as the oh. genre, and um, I thought, well, that, that'll be fun. Um, and I'd done, I'd made a. a directed a romantic comedy film so it's always been a genre that i've loved in terms of Mm -hmm. cinema but it's not really something i've tried to write in in a short story form Hmm. so i just um 
it was a challenge that really appealed. And yet, because of my recent romantic history, it sort of inevitably filtered in. Sure, sure, that's natural. Well, the thing that I really liked about this piece is I love a piece that starts off with you expecting it to go one way and then it doesn't. Because it starts Mm -hmm. off fun, these people meet, um, but it doesn't end, you know, in a happy way. And I just, I really appreciate that about it. So when you started writing it, Mm -hmm. was that your expectation? Well, actually, I'm, you know, I'm sure some of your other writers will have talked about this or we'll talk about it the idea of you know whether you're a plotter or a mm-hmm, pantser mm-hmm. oh yeah people say and i i think i'm very much the latter so um i don't often necessarily know the ending sometimes i know the beginning and the ending and i don't know right. the middle and this occasion i knew the i knew that absolutely saw very crystal clear the the meat cute as, as they say in cinema mm-hmm. terms between yeah. the two characters but i didn't i didn't know where it was going to take them although the presence of a stop sign which was mandated uh, was was obviously throwing up the notion that you know this this relationship would somehow be arrested. Um, so I wanted that to be like a a, me- a metaphor that comes yeah. that becomes literal when he's almost almost um, what's the word beheaded right by bisected I think yeah. is the word that you used um, <laughs> right yeah yeah which is your laugh out loud um, moment yeah. in fact. I would love to film. I would love to film that scene, but I don't know where the I don't know where the film would end up going. But um, <laughs> it would be fun to try and to try and do that for real. Yeah, that's great. So you're a pantser or a discovery writer, <clears throat> excuse me, or a discovery writer. So mm. um, you didn't necessarily know. Discovery, that sounds a much better term. Yeah. yeah. Well, I heard that from another <laughs> podcast I listened yeah. to that um, about writing. But anyway. Mm. Yeah, okay. So uh, do you want to talk about the movie at all? Melissa, do you have a question? No, I think it's really interesting. So. I guess a segue into um, your ideas and how you get writing. Mm-hmm. I heard that you might have an unusual way of formulating I- story ideas. So can you tell us about how you how you get ideas and how they come to you, how your stories come? Yeah, um, not in this particular one, but um, quite a lot of my other stories recently. What, uh, what happened was, I, um, it was 2020, I'd, with typical timing, left a job just before coronavirus occurred and oh, nice. i'd gone to have a short holiday and then i was going to i was going to visit my parents in edinburgh they live in a beautiful part of town on the outskirts near the hills um so i went to visit them and i got locked down with them and because they're quite elderly you know we didn't really see anyone else but we were it was nice to spend time with them and i had plenty of time on my hands because i i wasn't working and i was you know, casually applying for jobs, but my heart wasn't really in it. Hmm. So I wanted something to do. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to give myself a challenge. So I'm going to try and write a story. Could I write a story every day and and pop them on YouTube? So, um, you know, read them out. So I thought, I'll write a thousand word story a day. And I thought, how am I going to come up with an idea for a story every day? And then I sort of remembered a couple of things um, inspired this, I think. There was the Brian Eno used to use this. Uh, he had a set. I haven't got this, but there's a set of cards. I think it's called Oblique Strategies, and it's like a, a set of fifty-two playing cards. And you, if you're stuck, if you've got a block, he would give. He would just get a musician to pick a card, and they would say things like, "Flip it back to front," or, um, you know, they would they would give you little, little semi-abstract notions of where to take your idea. Yeah. And then I've always been a fan of the. The Ulupo writers, the French, it was a French school that began, I think, in the 1950s and 60s. And they were, they were writers who gave themselves these crazy constraints, like George Perec is the, the best known. And he wrote a book called, um, well, in English, it's called Avoid, 
which is sort of like a ironic ironic pun of a title. <laughs> yes, this is, is an entire novel without the le- without the letter E. No so way. That's nearly impossible <laughs> in English. But can you imagine in French? You can't even have you can't even have a mas- uh, masculine noun in French. Yeah. Because you can't have you can't yeah. you can't have le. Yeah. So uh. um, you can't have and in French. You're gonna have eh. Oh, you're so, right. Um, oh my goodness, that's impossible. So, uh, but it it made. I mean, that's an extreme example. I mean, I, I don't. This guy, if you look at the back of the a George Perrick book jacket, he looks like a crazy professor. He's he's got the sort of professor brainstorm. <laughs> that's great. Tufts of hair. Um, but they all they had all these different constraints, and I thought, well, a simple a simple version of a constraint would be, if I were to find say five random words, and I have to use those words in the story. But also, I don't come to the story, I don't have a story and then try and cram the words into them. That's completely the wrong way to do it. Right. So I, I found this website that generates random words and um, they're all nouns and verbs and adjectives. So they're you know very useful words. <laughs> and um, I get the five words. I'm not allowed to veto any of them. And then I just sort of stare at them or sometimes I go for a run or a walk. And an idea comes. Um, and usually it's quite left field and strange, especially when you've got like because it's an American website, it threw up one day Gold Bricker. I don't, I don't know what that is. is. What is a I Gold Bricker? Yeah. <laughs> That's hilarious. A Gold Bricker is like a time waster or something. It's like an archaic term for um, somebody who's just, <laughs> you know, just in it for the right. cash, and they're not really they don't, yeah. their heart's not in something. Okay, um, That's a good one then. So that crazy but though. The nature of the words. Sometimes it was, yeah, it would suggest this story is going to have to be set in America because no Britain's <laughs> ever going to use that word. Um, so, um, yeah. So, I mean, similarly, actually, with the uh, New York NY Midnight story, because they gave me thrift store. Now, thrift store, we do have, we have, sec- we have junk stores or secondhand stores or things, but it's not quite the same as the thrift store. It's a very, yeah. there's a specific association in my mind mm-hmm. with that. And yeah. I think I remember seeing him in was it a Woody Allen, maybe Annie Hall or Woody, uh, one of the Woody Allen films. They're wandering around a thrift store, and there's it spills out onto the street. You know, it's like mm-hmm. a flea right. market, or you know, it's got also, you never know what you're going to find. It could be a, yeah. a stunning antique, or it could be a piece of old tap. So, um, yeah, the ra- the randomness I find very inspiring. A lot of people, like my my dad said, you shouldn't tell people that because <laughs> people expect artists to be inspired by a thunderbolt of inspiration from from nowhere and i thought well that's just as random as having a collection of words right in front of you it definitely is it's like at. a word thunderbolt yeah. yeah yeah i could be walking in the street and see uh a ducks two ducks swimming around each other in a river and be inspired to write a scene mm-hmm. with it but that's just mm-hmm. as random yeah so given that i'm locked in my house <laughs> and i can only go out for like a local walk or a run and none of the shops are open and there are no restaurants open and i'm not mm-hmm. meeting anyone where's the thunderbolt going to come from right. so some days it was harder than others obviously some days i just i don't know what i'm going to do with these words yeah. and other days another days it was just like a weird serendipity where these this absolutely conjures up an image and i've sort of finessed it now and i've developed a strategy within this crazy idea where you start with the more two the most unusual words first. So you sort of look at them and think, well, those are the hardest words to incorporate. So let me look, let me let me think about how to really integrate those, and and not in a and it mustn't feel forced. If if the reader yeah. picks up on your technique, then it's oh, right, it's sure. not right. Right. And you, know, you don't have to use five words, and it doesn't have to be a thousand words. You know, 
but I just find these random a random strategy like that can sort of unblock you if you're looking for inspiration, I think. I think that's a really good idea. Yeah. It reminds mm. me of my five-year-old got recently these story cards. They're, and each yeah. card has a picture on it, and you have to lay it down, and mm. you create your story. You just keep laying down these cards. And, I mean, they get interesting because one right yeah. after another. And it's like those random words fitting them together. It's a puzzle. <laughs> I think that's really neat. It's a really yeah. good idea. It's great exercise as well because it takes you places your imagination wouldn't normally go. Yeah. Because, um, yeah, you're, you're sort of... It stops you going down routes that you've gone many, many times, I think. Yeah. It takes you out of your comfort yeah, zone. Yeah, that's great. I mean, that's a good that's a good writing exercise. <clears throat> I don't know that I could do that, though. We had an exercise here where we wrote in a writer's group a bunch of different writers. Melissa was the key person for this, where we wrote a story for some people in our writer's group that were getting married. And each writer from the group <laughs> um, kind of wrote a piece of it. But the you didn't know what <laughs> came before, so you only read like the last sentence or two sentences and Uh, they call it a frankenstein oh my gosh but i got i got i was gonna do it and i got it and then the words was like someone was coming out of a wall or something again i thought like a figure (laughs) and i thought oh my gosh i don't even i have no idea where to go with this so i just i just punted and moved it on (laughs) he totally chickened out (laughs) so my point is i admire you for you know this is saying i'm going to do this because i think a lot of writers should do that and myself included (laughs) i think yeah and and the whole thing about write write what you know is is uh, is bunkum really. <laughs> yes, you have to, you have to write. You can only write from what you know mm-hmm. in the sense that you can only write from your own perspective. But that doesn't mean to say that you can't have empathy for other people, um, other times, yeah, other parts of the galaxy, other genres. You know, I mean, and there's also research and there's talking right. to people. Yeah. So I think I think you should allow your imagination to stretch as much as possible. It won't always work, you know. Sometimes you'll get a, a dog of a story right, out of right. it, right? And certainly I have a few of those, but um, but those are stepping stones. Um, Even the dogs yeah. are stepping stones. That sounds strange, but yeah, yeah. you know, <laughs> stepping on dogs. <laughs> um, I don't condone that. Off, awfully cruel. But yeah, and yeah, there might be an image or something that lasts even from that terrible story, or or certainly yeah. it. Um, it's just keeping, ex- you know, it's keeping the, the uh, creative muscles exercised. Yeah, that's great. Exactly. Well, hey, so your first two novels that I saw were basically memoirs about running these kind of crazy distances. And they look very interesting, although I have not yet read them. Are you still running now? Or do you get any ideas while you're running? Yeah, I'm, um, I'm a bit like um, Haruki Murakami in that respect, because he runs every day. I mean, I don't run every day, but... Um, he thinks of writing and running as almost two sides of the same creative process. Hmm. I wouldn't, I wouldn't quite say I'm there, but definitely the subconscious seems to do a lot of work um, when I'm running, even if I'm not consciously thinking about a mm-hmm. story or thinking about an idea. But actually, yesterday, yesterday I was stuck for an idea. Um, it was actually another competition story for this NY Midnight thing, um, because my last story did quite well and I've got through to the Great. second round. So not, not, this is not a sign from bubble. This sure. is another one. Um, they gave me a real challenge. It's sort of, cause I had the word, um, blabbermouth, which, um, I don't have to use the word blabbermouth in their, in their set of rules, but I have to have the concept of a, it was blabbermouth. What was that again? Blabbermouth. And, um, the genre was, uh, a comedy and, uh, there was, 
God, I should have forgotten this already. <laughs> <laughs> See, I've, I've done it. I finished it and I pushed it out of my mind. <laughs> You're on to your next project. But, um, but the point I was going to make is that I was stuck. I thought, I really don't have a strong idea. And there's a time limit for this competition. So I went for a run. No, I actually went for a walk. By the time I got to the end of the street, something just popped into my, into my head. Um, that Because oh no, I had the concept of oh, sorry, incognito and blabbermouth. Oh, wow. Um, eventually, it just occurred to me that if somebody's, say, on a witness protection program, and then they meet someone they know, and that oh. person is about to break their cover, and then it just yeah, opened up yeah. after that. Oh, that's very so good. It's just getting that key to turn in the right lock. Right, um, right. And then it all happens, yeah. I have a friend who runs, and she, mm. and she was a writer. All the time, every time she runs, she's like, oh, I, I don't know what to do. Let me just go for a run. And she basically plots her novels by her series of runs, which, so that's really curious of how mm. I feel like a lot of people have that. It must shake something loose. Yeah, I wonder, uh, I wonder if you could do some research to figure out what what's happening in the brain. Yeah. <laughs> Where some sort of... E- portable ecg machine that measures your brain waves and sees which part of, which parts of the brain are being fired i like i know that, that alpha i think i read some of the alpha waves are quite active when you're when you're running that's interesting something to do with um i don't know i like, I'll have to look, i'd like to look more into it because it does seem to be not not an, a not uncommon experience i think so well um, walking and it doesn't have to, i don't think that's yeah, running walking, walking running yeah. driving actually i think it has to do with using mm the right side of your brain somehow don't get you don't process as much as you might normally because you're focused on one task and so somehow yeah. that frees up mm. i don't know space whatever i i find myself though when i do i get lots of ideas when i'm driving and mm. i can't just start writing them down <laughs> on the road you know <laughs> so that becomes yeah. a problem because for, they don't stick in my head i'll have this great idea same thing happens at night you know, I'm in a position where it's like, oh, I'm going to write that down. And you think you're going to remember it. I don't ever remember. So do you carry when you're, do you carry something or does it stick in your head? Um, I, I'm sort of generally of the belief that if it's a good idea, it will stick around. That yeah. might be quite naive. But although having said that, if when I, when I, I've got my little, my little books here, when I wrote um, uh, like downhill from here, I had to remember the experience that I'd had on my run but I wasn't in a position to write them down. So I had a GoPro and I would talk to the GoPro and, oh, and film things and take, take photographs. Um, but obviously if you're driving, if you're driving, they're not, I guess all you, all you could do is, um, you know, have your phone on voice activation and go, Siri, take a, <laughs> exactly. take a note hey, or, Google or Siri or whatever. Yeah. Um, I'm sure there's, a, I'm sure there's di- dictation apps that you could just launch into and they would, um, record whatever you say i've Uh, tried that though but for some reason it'll pick up something that i did not say you know it's like this garbage Ah. and it's like i did not say that (laughs) or maybe the idea was so so bad that i think oh maybe that Mm. wasn't such a good idea you'd have to wear a (laughs) a, a microphone while you're driving or carry a transcription i just need to have a writer with me there in the car just always have a always have a passenger right take a note hey take dictation for you (laughs) (laughs) that's good stuff get the kids on it yes She's going to learn to write here. It's a good way yeah. to get her to learn her letters and, and read. <laughs> well, I've got a question for you. So when you're working on so I know you're, you've got mm. those sort of memoirs that you've written. Do you, and you've been working on some novels. One of the things that happens to me, and I'd be curious to have, if this happens to you, is I have, won't have written on it for a while, or I'll be working on it, but I actually hear like a conversation in my head. Like my characters are talking, and so I see a scene. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but I consider myself a discovery writer, and then I'll try to remember it if I'm out doing something. Does that happen to you, or are you more of a, you sit down at the desk and it all comes out at that point, or at the computer? Um, I, I think I see images or scenes, but they don't tend to come with dialogue. Uh, yeah, but I think it partly comes from having a visual, quite a visual orientation, and that's why I was interested in getting into film. Yeah, the dialogue seems to have to come out spontaneously. It's like I have to overhear the characters in the moment talking to each other. Yeah. Yes. And then, and then sometimes I get criticised by, um, you know, every, every writer's probably got those friends and family members that are really critical writers, uh, critical readers. You know, oh, they yeah. won't give you the, the good news. They'll tell you the bad stuff. <laughs> so um, sometimes I get the, the note back that uh, all, all your characters sound the same. They don't sound, that doesn't sound like a teenage girl or like a, a, an elderly man from the Bronx. So yeah okay fine and yeah. I have to do another draft <laughs> right, and right, I have yeah. to um, differentiate them so yeah the nuts and bolts work of getting the actual plot and getting the what what they need to say to each other comes first and then layers of yeah but now how are they going to say it so that it matches you know so that they all sound mm-hmm. different sound like different people but there are some writers who especially screenwriters like even Tarantino you know there aren't that there's not that many different flavours in in his dialogue mm-hmm. everyone's quite sort of hip and witty well with a few exceptions yeah it's a good point i think when you're writing too the characters really sound different in your head and they don't come across mm. on the page sometimes i had that happen with my i wrote a psychological thriller had two povs going back and forth and i got mm. that same feedback it's like oh you they sound really similar and i in my head i'm like what <laughs> you know they no yeah. they're totally different uh, you can see them. That's the problem. And yes. you've got probably got a quite a, f- a fixed notion of what they look like, and oh yeah, the other person and the reader has to has to they have to reverse engineer it. So they have to take yeah. the dialogue, and then they have to create the the image. Yeah, you're exactly. So right. I suppose that's the yeah that's the it's like a translation problem. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's a difficult one because I don't want to start. I don't generally want to start writing. Um, in dialect or something, I always find that can be a bit mm-hmm. weird. And you, you know, if you're trying to mimic someone's style of speaking and you're not an expert, you know, I wouldn't try and write like a Tennessee mm-hmm. person. I just, I couldn't. I'd have to go and live there for, you know, months on end if I want to write like a like somebody who's been brought up in the woods of Tennessee or something. I'm not going to be able to do that. So <laughs> I would just have to drop. Or maybe you drop in a note or two here or a word, word choice or something yeah. or some little thing that they do which right. is unusual that other people don't do. That's a yeah. good point. Well, I did hear one person do some research for dialect and various things by going on YouTube. All right. Hmm. And that way you just get yeah. to hear this way folks talk. Yeah. Not, not something I have ever done, but I thought that was an interesting approach. It is. Yes. I mean, the internet, God, the internet is such a resource um, for writers. There's, I mean, you can get lost, yes. obviously. <laughs> it's a great way of waste, wasting your time when you're supposed to <laughs> yes. be writing. Um, exactly. But it's got everything you need on there so yeah yeah that's cool well tell us a little bit about the movie so you directed it did you write the screenplay for it also yeah yeah i did everything i mean i went to film school so i i've got a degree in film and it's a real struggle to get your first movie made um but i managed to meet this producer who him and i got on really well and he liked he wanted to make something that was you know very restricted in time and place with just a few characters and so i had a script called Sparks and Embers, which was the so-called clever idea, or what I thought was a clever <laughs> idea, was that you would see the beginning and end of a relationship. Um, you'd see the first time they meet, 
and you see when five years later they've had a relationship they've split up and they're friends and one of them is going uh, the the woman is moving back to france she's french and she's got a new partner and she's moving back to her home country and he and he is meeting her ostensibly to say goodbye but with a secret agenda to see whether he's missed the boat it's actually thematically quite similar to a sign from above in, in a sense i was just but, thinking yeah, yeah i was too um so yeah you jump back and forth between the two time frames um so yeah that's, i mean that's that writing was so dialogue based it's mostly half of it's set in a lift they get stuck in a lift you know elevator uh together and um oh wow she's she's a consultant who's come to the record company where he works he's a bit of a layabout and um as a result of her recommendations on restructuring he loses his job and he doesn't know who she is because when she was there doing her consultancy work he wasn't there but um events so, you know typical romantic comedy style they should hate each other but they're stuck together for hours and um so there's an arc, yeah. natural arc there, and then the second part they meet on they meet on the South Bank in London, yeah. which mm-hmm. is for uh, basically it's where all the arts, all the galleries, and not all of them, but many galleries and um, the Tate galleries, the Tate Moderns there, and um, National Theatre and various things. So it's got all these amazing, but they're all sort of sixties brutalist concrete structures. But then there's weird things that there's always like German markets and <laughs> um, Christmas lights and stuff. So it's quite romantic and modern. And you get fantastic views of the London skyline. So Aww. we we shot half the movie there, which was on paper would have been easy were it not for the fact that that's really neat. We shot over about seven miles of it, and it's chopped into six or seven chunks, each one owned by a separate property company. And oh wow, yeah, so of it, course, it of wasn't course. easy after all. <laughs> but um, it was a great experience, and I really, I really do want to make another film. But it's so exhausting getting the money together. Um, and it's such a gamble. It's like nothing mm. else. I mean, at least with a book, you can you can say, this is the book, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, where can we find this? Uh, I think it might be on, um, yeah, I think it might be on iTunes or something like that. Um, it's on, it's definitely on Amazon oh, Prime. Oh, it might, it might I be on Amazon Prime. On there. I didn't watch it. I, I did get to see a preview right. or something of it. So I did see some of the scenes yeah. and oh, that's it was really well cool. shot. It looked good. I, I, in retrospect, I would say, yeah, there's so many things I could have, I could have done to the script. Um, yeah, I definitely need to, I think I could have, I should have done more work on the script, but I mean, I did, I did a lot of drafts of it. It's just that um, I got sort of locked into a way of thinking. So there are a lot of bits about it I love and I love the ending. And I think for me, a lot, it ends well. So you leave the film if you make it that far. I think yeah. it's got the, it's got the right ending. And actually <laughs> it has got a similar ending. And I'm going to, I won't say too much. But there <laughs> There are some thematic similarities, as I said, with a sign from above, but not not everything I write is a is a romantic comedy that ends ambiguously or tragically. Yeah, ends badly or yeah. that's okay. That's great. Well, hey, I cannot believe it, but we are already um, just coming up on our a little over thirty minutes. So, hmm. one of the last questions we have been asking lately. I'm not going to promise that we're going to do this from here on out for our listeners, but. Do you have any writing advice that you would give to uh, those kind of in the writing world that are still learning? I, I think I've, I've covered some of it in that um, I think you should find ways to stretch your imagination and, and, you know, write things that you wouldn't normally write, right? Take on challenges. Enter competitions, not because you expect to win them or because you won't, almost certainly, but because they will make you do something that you hadn't envisaged, especially if they have these 
strange arbitrary rules. Um, yeah. And then I think, yeah, as you say, rejection is something to be seen as a, a necessary hurdle, but it's not, uh, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean they didn't like your work. In fact, you, you have to be careful because some, some um, magazines have two, diff two or three different rejection emails, one of which is more encouraging than the other. Uh, so you need to try and read between the lines sometimes if, when they say they want me to resubmit do they actually mean it you know do they did they really like or did did you just edge out of the final selection for the magazine and if so they probably right. would you like would you like mm -hmm. you at some point to send them another story and as I say just just keep on notch it up tick it off the spreadsheet or whatever it is however it is you record them make sure you do record them and then move on to the next one. You mean record the... Uh, yeah, I've, I've got a, in. Yeah. a spreadsheet um, where I put the name of the publication, the date I submitted it, how I submitted it, when they replied, what the reply was. And then I have a color coding system where if it hmm. goes, if it's, if it's uh, green, it's been accepted. And if it's yellow, it's been published. And everything else is gray. <laughs> gray or white. Nice. White <laughs> means they haven't replied. And sometimes I nudge them if they haven't replied. Other times I just, when it gets to like, five or six months, I just assume it's a rejection. Yeah. Um, but I, I've made hundreds of applications. Well, some of those places, they take a long time. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I think there was one website that was tabulating how long literary magazines took to reply. But it, it, it relies... There yeah, is a website. I've seen it. But it, it relies on the authors to... People reporting. Yeah, get their act together mm -hmm. and fill it in. And I don't know how long. Exactly. And, <laughs> right. Which, you know... I think the fact that you track it as well as you do is probably unusual for most writers. <laughs> I just, I just but think it's, anyway. it's also um, don't don't be afraid to send it to multiple publications at once because most magazines are fine with simultaneous submission as long as yeah. you do tell them if they accept right. it. If someone accepts it, definitely go back to the other magazines and don't necessarily rub it in their face. Well, no, <laughs> say, uh, <laughs> you've taken too long. It's been accepted elsewhere. <laughs> No, you, you you just go back and say, look, I'm really, uh, I'm really sorry. It's been accepted somewhere else. I hope it's not too inconvenient. And then there might be the opportunity for it to be published in more than one magazine because, you know, as I'm sure you know, there isn't necessarily a huge overlap between readership of different publications. And if they're several months apart, right. the chances of someone having chanced upon that story in one magazine and then see it somewhere else is still quite slim. Right. So I have had one of my stories published twice uh, in two different publications one online and one printed and they were both they were fine with that hmm. but you know if i hadn't asked the question i might have just assumed and withdrawn it from the second one so sometimes it's worth right, if you really right. love the story and you think that they do too then it's maybe sometimes worth saying look it's going to be published here but if you still want it you know i ha they said yes first so i have to give them the you know first call right is right it, i think that's that's really good advice oh, yeah. all i mean that is most of the time you'll get, uh, no, it's okay, don't worry. <laughs> don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Gavin, it's been a pleasure to read your story and listen to it and um, in talking with you about you know writing. So thanks for being on the show and thanks for submitting. people enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah, lovely to talk to you. It has been great. Yeah, you as well. I look forward to um, looking at the website and listening to the other stories. Great, thank you. All right, we'll see you around. Yeah. Right. See you then. Thanks. Bye. Thanks, Gavin. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. If so, please help us spread the word by telling your friends or giving us a rating and review on your favorite podcast app. Those reviews really make a difference. We'd like to thank the folks at Literature and Latte, the makers of Scrivener, for sponsoring the podcast and providing an amazing tool for writers. 
If you'd like to take your writing to the next level and use a tool designed for writers by writers, then give Scrivener a try. What have you got to lose? The Story Discovery Podcast is a free, narrated podcast of the works that appear in Etched Onyx magazine. Edited by J.W. McAteer and Kevin McMahon. All stories and poems are available for free at onyxpublications.com. That's O-N-Y-X publications.com. If you'd like to support the continuation of this podcast and or the magazine, please consider a small donation through Patreon at patreon.com slash onyxpublications. As a nano publishing house, we are always looking for new works to showcase. If you'd like to submit a story or poem for consideration, please visit the submissions page on our website. In the meantime, keep reading and writing.